Well, as Graeme said, this is number two in a short series of five messages as we look at the passages of Luke's record of the events that took place leading up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this series will conclude, God willing, on Christmas Day morning as we read and consider together that account that Luke gives us of the actual birth of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Well, let me encourage you to have Luke chapter 1 open before you from verse 26 as we consider these remarkable things that uh, the gospel records give us. Of course, it's, it's primarily Matthew and Luke who record specific details regarding the birth of Christ and the events that led up to that time. And I want to consider this section from verses 26 to 38 under three headings this morning. I want us to see, first of all, a miracle foretold. A miracle foretold. Now, the angel Gabriel plays a significant role in the events surrounding Christ's birth. As with major storylines in the Old Testament, God has chosen to use a physical manifestation in order to communicate to the people he's about to use what it is exactly that he's about to do. In the Old Testament, we find God, well, for the most part, he speaks to his people through his prophets. Thus says the Lord, they declare. But we also find that from time to time in the Old Testament, God speaks directly to other individuals. And this was, as for the prophets, well, how did God speak to them? Well, sometimes we find that he did speak with an audible voice. On other occasions, it was an inner revelation by the work of his Holy Spirit. Quite precisely how that worked is something of a mystery to us, but it's what the Bible most definitely and clearly teaches. On some occasions, however, even in the Old Testament, God sent an angel or angels, such as appeared on several occasions in the story of Abraham, if you read that through. But we also find instances in the Old Testament of God himself appearing in a temporary human form. We call it a theophany. One example would be when Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis chapter 32. We believe that to have been the Lord Jesus Christ himself, not incarnate, not in a fully human form as he would become at his birth, but taking on some kind of form so as to be able to engage with Jacob in that way. In announcing this new work that God is about to do at the start of the Gospels, it is Gabriel who God chooses to use. Well, more than six months now have passed since Zacharias had his encounter with Gabriel in the temple. Elizabeth is now six months pregnant, verse 36. Now, it's interesting to note that as these, these different things are being recorded for us, they're being written down by a doctor. 
We know that Luke was a doctor because that's how Paul speaks of him in Colossians chapter 4. So here's a man with a scientific mind. Here's a man who knows how babies are made. He wouldn't have known as much as medics today know, but he understood the basics well enough. He knows that someone in Elizabeth's position and at her age is never going to become pregnant. But she did. And the witnesses were many. And the evidence was overwhelming and undeniable. Well, how can this possibly be? Luke is more than satisfied to put his trust in the story of Gabriel's appearance to Zacharias as the means of explaining how this happened and to put his name to this written record of what took place. But then medically speaking, Luke is presented with a completely different dilemma. Here is a young woman in her prime, Mary, probably no more than in her mid-teens, fitter and stronger than she'll ever be to bear a child. Ah, well, that's looking more hopeful. Very good. Just one problem, at least when it comes to having a baby. She's a virgin. She's never had any sexual intimacy of any sort with any man. She's promised in marriage to Joseph, but both of them are walking before God in purity and with fidelity. We note again, as we did with Zacharias and Elizabeth, that God has chosen to use those who were of the correct line of descent, this time from King David, more on that shortly, but also those who are walking before God as they ought to walk, and Mary has been blessed and found favour with God. Let me also say, this does not qualify her to be venerated and worshipped as some do. Uh, more on Mary next week when we look at the following verses. But back to the facts being placed before us, this young girl is going to become pregnant without having had any physical contact with a man. Because, says Paul, this medical man of science, God in the power of his Holy Spirit is going to work in the body of this young woman what must surely be the most remarkable, wonderful, glorious miracle that's recorded anywhere in the Bible. That God himself is going to enter into the body of this girl. The one born of her will be one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. And Dr. Luke makes no attempt to explain how this can be any more than I am going to try to attempt it. He can give you no explanation as to how this can be other than to say it is God. I can give you no explanation as to how this could be other than to say this is the power of God at work. Luke believes it and he receives it in the light of all of the investigations that he's done 
and he takes it by faith. There's every possibility, you know, that Luke actually spoke to Mary personally and got her first-hand account. She and other sons born to her and Joseph were around in the time of the early church. She and her brothers are mentioned in Acts chapter 1. She was there for him to talk to. And so Luke, seemingly in quite a matter-of-fact way, recalls for us all that takes place six months after Elizabeth had conceived. And it's away from the bright lights of Jerusalem. It's up in the hills of Galilee, in back of beyond and inconsequential Nazareth. This frightened girl comes face to face with none other than Gabriel to receive this news of unbelievable favour and blessing that God has bestowed upon her. Luke's got no way of explaining this medically. And so in that regard, he remains silent. What he is convinced of is this. With God, nothing will be impossible. Verse 37. And of course, as Luke quotes that phrase to explain these remarkable truths, Jesus will also quote it to explain how it is that anyone, anywhere could ever be saved. With God, nothing is impossible. Do you have faith to believe and to be saved? Do you have loved ones who are yet to believe and be saved? Perhaps it seems at times it's beyond all hope that they ever could be. Well, cling to this and keep on praying with God Nothing will be impossible. And secondly, in this passage, we have promises fulfilled. Promises fulfilled. And look at me from verse 31 through to 36. Now, the promise that was given to Zacharias has been fulfilled, and Elizabeth is the six month pregnant proof of it. And we'll see next week that Mary goes and visits Elizabeth and finds things exactly as Gabriel has said. Promises are being fulfilled. You see, the word of God is truth. God speaks truth. What God says he will do, he does. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. It's a mark of his sinless perfection that he never fails in his promises. And it's a mark of his unrivaled power and authority that there is nothing that can ever or will ever prevent him from keeping his promises. You have no reason not to trust him. He is always good to his word. And he keeps his promise in the miraculous way that this baby is to be conceived Because God has previously declared in his word in Isaiah chapter 7 that you will get a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And here it is. His name will be Emmanuel. God is going to be with you. God is going to come amongst you. It was promised. And in nine months time it's to be fulfilled. You'll call him Jesus. 
That name comes from the root from which we get the name Joshua. It means Jehovah saves. And Matthew adds the little explanation. You'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from, his, from their sins. That's going to be another promise fulfilled. All through the Old Testament you'll find references to the promises of God in providing salvation for his people. In the Psalms alone you'll find dozens of references to salvation and, such as in Psalm 118, that God himself will become their salvation for them. And very soon God is going to keep that promise. Christ will come. The Old Testament is filled with references to an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. And it's all based upon a promise originally given to King David. He's held up in the Old Testament as being kind of a picture and a forerunner of Christ. A lesser type of Christ to Israel. With the true Saviour, the true Christ the true and greater and everlasting king, to be descended from his family line. That promise is given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's sometimes referred to as the Davidic covenant. It's the covenant God makes with David down through the generations. It lasts for 14 verses, but towards the end of it, God makes this statement. He's speaking to David through his prophet Nathan. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. That's Christ he's speaking of. Who will come from your body. He's going to be a descendant from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. My mercy shall not depart from him and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And God is speaking of that time when from the line of David would come the one who is king of kings who will reign for all time and into eternity. And that language is repeated many times thereafter throughout the Old Testament. What's Gabriel saying? He's saying this baby will be that seed. And Joseph, as we've seen, is descended from David. And so the household to which Jesus belongs will be from that heritage fulfilling that promise. And that everlasting kingdom that's being foretold is about to be ushered in. The promises are all about to be fulfilled. Something glorious is about to occur. So glorious it will lead to most of the world resetting their calendar by it. Imagine that. What kind of event must that have been? And this event will be about one person. The Lord Jesus Christ. All, all the focus is going to be on him. It's interesting, it's said of John the Baptist back in verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
here of Jesus, it simply says he will be great. <laughs> he will be great. He himself will be greatness. Christ is greatness in a body, in his being, in his person, in his work of redemption. Everything about Christ will be great. This baby will be the son of the highest, the son of God, verse 35. He'll be the promised Messiah. He'll be the fulfillment of God's covenant with David, the king of kings who will reign over an everlasting kingdom. If there really is a God, and if he really is going to deal with my sin, I need him to be bigger than I am. Don't you? I need him to be mightier than I am. I need him to be wiser than I am. I need him to be purer than I am. A God who is no bigger or greater than I am is no use to me whatsoever. I need a God who is able to do this. I don't need a myth or a legend that sounds like he can. I need a God who's actually going to come into the world and do it. Because he has the power and the authority to do so. And that's what he's doing. And that's what he's announcing. God is about to become flesh. Emmanuel. He's about to step down from his glory and humble himself. In a way that you would not imagine possible. Why? In order that he might seek and save those who are lost. And condemned in their sins. And the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? How can you believe this? How can you? Well, look at the very final verse that we're going to consider this morning. Verse 38. Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord... Let it be to me according to your word. Now that might not sound like very much. But that is huge, huge, huge what she's just said. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe the Bible? There's only one reason for believing the Bible that really matters. There's only one reason for believing the Bible that means anything and is of any use. A.W. Tozer was a much-loved pastor and preacher in the United States. He began to pastor his first church a hundred years ago this year. You might think that someone from a century ago has nothing much relevant to say in the 21st century. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Listen. I'm going to quote him. I am going to change one thing. He makes an allusion to baseball. I know nothing about baseball. I've changed it to cricket. That still might not help some people, but at least it's English. Um, there we go. 
He said this, I receive lots of magazines, most of which I dutifully and joyously never read. I looked at one recently after I came home in the evening and it had a question and answer section in it. One question was, Dear Dr. So-and-so, what about the whale swallowing Jonah? Do you believe that? Now, how would you respond? Do you believe it? And if you, if you do believe it, why do you believe it? What would you say? Listen very carefully. The good doctor replied, whoever this man was in the magazine, yes, I believe it. Science proves that there are whales big enough to swallow men. And Tozer says this, I folded the magazine and laid it down. That man had come up to bat, but been bowled out for a duck. He would not scored any runs with that answer. Toza says this I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale not because a scientist has crawled in and measured a whale's belly and come out and said yes God can do it if God said that Jonah was swallowed by a whale then a whale swallowed Jonah why? because God Said he did. End of story. Do you get the point? Tozer goes on. We do not need a scientist to measure the gullet of a whale. Why are we fussing around finding out the collar size of a whale or how big its neck is? Here's his conclusion. Listen carefully. Whenever I find men running to science, see, it's not a new issue. This is a hundred years ago. Whenever I find men running to science to find support for the Bible, I know they are rationalists. They are not true believers. Well, thank God for men like A.W. Tozer. There is only one reason for believing the Bible that matters. There is only one reason for believing the Bible that counts. It's because you believe that God is. And you believe the Bible is his word. And that is enough. That is sufficient. And if you say that is not sufficient, you are in big trouble spiritually. Big, big trouble. If the fact that God is, and that the Bible is his word, is not sufficient for you, you're in big trouble. Do you 
believe is the question. How did Mary respond, you see? There's only one response that's going to be pleasing to God. Mary humbled herself before the Lord. She acknowledges God's lordship over her. And she acknowledges her place as his humble servant. And let it be to me according to your word. God has said it. That is enough. So be it. That, friends, is the faith of a believer. Do you believe? You've all the evidence you need within the Bible itself, you see. It's what we call a self-attesting book. It confirms itself. It interprets itself. It identifies itself. It needs nothing outside itself to prove itself to you. It is the place and work of the Holy Spirit to convince men and women of its truth. It's not the place of science and philosophy to do that. It's the Spirit alone who convinces people of these truths. It's the Spirit of God alone who makes people fall on their knees before the Lord and say, yes, I believe. Because you see, the belief that is needed is far more than just the elimination of skepticism. That's not believing. The belief that is needed is far more than overcoming disbelief of the facts. That's not believing. The, the, the belief that is needed casts the sinner on their knees in repentance of their sins before the Lord God of heaven. The belief that is needed embraces the Son of the Highest, Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's come to take my sin. The, the, the belief that is needed by faith loves and follows Christ as Saviour and Lord. A miracle is foretold in this book. Do you believe? Promises are fulfilled in this book. Do you believe? Salvation is promised and secured in this book, God's Word. Do you believe? Our Father in heaven, how we praise you. For the things you have revealed to us through your word. Lord we pray that for each one of us. We might see and know and understand. That these truths come from heaven. These truths from the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Eternally God. Oh grant O oh Lord. That we might humbly bow before you. And that we might believe that we might know that this baby born in Bethlehem is the saviour of the world, that he is the one to whom we must turn in repentance and faith. 
Oh, grant us, O oh Lord, faith and understanding that we might rejoice in all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in his most precious name. Amen. Amen.